Welcome to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In this episode, we discussed a variety of topics, including the effects of birth control and the menstrual cycle on periodization, the concept of dietary fat cycling, and the time course of muscle and connective tissue adaptations to training. Greg also gives some good tips on how to turn a good hypertrophy program into a strength program and how to keep a neutral pelvis while squatting and deadlifting. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler, and one man can't do it all on a podcast, so my assistant today is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me on. Now, we are recording this episode the day after, two days after? Two days after. Two days after the United States put an absolute whooping on the Netherlands in the Women's World Cup. And uh, we want to use that opportunity to let everybody in the Netherlands know that... um, you're a joke. Uh, you're, you're a clown. Yeah, so it, it was great that the U.S. women won. It was especially sweet, though, that they won over the Netherlands. So we joke around a lot on the show, but I'm going to give you a sneak peek into some very real, completely honest analytics that we have for uh, favorability of this podcast. So after we released the first episode... Seen as this is the first fitness podcast, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing. We didn't have anything to compare it to. So we just kind of put it out there, asked people, what did you think? What are some things we did well? What are some things we can improve on? And most of the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. However, we did have four very, very critical uh, pieces of feedback, Um, like messages from four people who just just really, really disliked the podcast. It, um, it was like a visceral level of dislike. Yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah, and yeah. and I mean, we we had hundreds of responses, and only four were like very, very negative. <laughs> All four were Dutch people, <laughs> and we checked our listener statistics. We had we had eleven downloads from the Netherlands. <laughs> so, uh, what I'm saying here is. We are not instigating conflict with the Dutch. The Dutch have already instigated conflict with us. Uh, This is officially a podcast that is pro-fitness, pro-science, anti-Netherlands. Absolutely, yeah. So, you know, putting you guys on notice, just as our women's soccer team took your women's soccer team down, we will take you down if you choose to escalate this conflict. (laughs) And... It's worth mentioning we're we're basically playing with house money by waging this because we only stand to lose I think three listeners if we just if we yeah completely... we, we, we we had eleven four of them hated us we have seven left whatever <laughs> <laughs> all right so getting down to business um, this is a question and answer episode we get the questions from you guys and then we answer them so the first question is for Greg. Um, the username a kuruk that's going to work for now sure the question is how do birth control and menstrual cycle hormones interact to affect periodization should i program with that in mind okay so um first kind of the assumption behind this question i would assume is that and, and if this wasn't the asker's assumptions this sh- this should have been the asker's assumptions is throughout the menstrual cycle, um, female sex hormones change, particularly estrogen and progesterone. And 
to massively simplify a bunch of physiology here, estrogen is good, progesterone not necessarily bad, but largely counteracts the positive effects of estrogen. Uh, the positive effects of estrogen being largely glycogen sparing, um, helps with muscle recovery, um, pretty good at reducing levels of inflammation post-training, pretty good stuff. Progesterone largely, largely counters that. So over the course of a menstrual cycle, um, starting at menses, levels of estrogen and progesterone are pretty low. Throughout the first half of the menstrual cycle, uh, estrogen levels gradually increase, progesterone levels stay quite low. Around ovulation, or slightly before ovulation, which is around the midpoint of the cycle, progesterone levels start increasing, and throughout the second half of the cycle during the luteal phase, both estrogen and progesterone levels are fairly high until menses begins, and then they both drop off. Um, so, so one would see that and assume that during the follicular phase and particularly like the second half of the follicular phase when progesterone is still low and estrogen is starting to increase, maybe training would go a little bit better then. Um, and in fact, that is what we've seen in a handful of studies, three or four to this point. Um, the way all of those studies were set up is essentially they'd have one group training with low volume or low frequency during the luteal phase and high volume and high frequency during the luteal phase or vice versa and see what the effects were on strength and hypertrophy. And what all of those studies found is that by doing more training during the follicular phase rather than the luteal phase, uh, the women got better results, gained more strength, grew more muscle. Um, so th that confirms the theory that, you know, largely training when progesterone levels are lower, you, you may have a slightly higher return on investment there. One weakness of those studies is there wasn't another condition where it's just keep volume and frequency high the whole month, um, <laughs> which one would assume would be better than just training hard two weeks out of the month. Um, so there's also some data indicating that women recover a little bit faster during the follicular phase. So that research is from Markovsky et al. 2014. So, so basically, it does seem like women recover a little bit faster from training during the follicular phase, which is the first two weeks of the cycle, um, and may just respond to training a little bit better during the follicular phase. But... I don't necessarily think you need to go completely out of out of your way to program around that. Um, I think most people kind of program their mesocycles in kind of month blocks in the first place, um, with maybe a deload week worked in there somewhere, or at least a week that's slightly easier. So it may not be a bad idea to have maybe your higher volume weeks of training during the follicular phase. And if you do have a deload week every month, make sure that that's during the luteal phase. But I don't think it's something you really need to move heaven and earth to program around. So that's kind of like the average answer. Uh, another thing worth noting is that um, subjective assessments from women about how they perform and how they recover throughout their menstrual cycle. Um, research that's just surveyed female athletes to ask like, Hey, how do you perform? How, how does your training go at different points in the cycle? That stuff's all over the place. So what I said is kind of like 
the average response that we see in the research, but individual female athletes, what actually works best for the individual may differ considerably from that. Um, so that's the menstrual cycle. Uh, when you throw birth control into the equation, it gets a lot messier because it largely depends on what kind of birth control formulation you're using. There's also less research on that. So there are a few studies just comparing training on birth control to not on birth control, but I haven't seen studies based on, you know, training during a high hormone phase of like your monthly birth control cycle versus a low hormone phase. Um, and things may respond a little bit differently with, uh, like endogenously produced hormones versus exogenously ingested synthetic hormones. So it's, it's kind of hard to say with birth control. One thing I will say though, is that there is still, there is still like a pretty strong belief among a lot of female athletes that birth control decreases training adaptations, decreases strength gains, decreases hypertrophy. And that was probably true like 20 years ago. Uh, one, one important thing to note about the progression of birth control is, so like I mentioned, progesterone, you know, not bad, but largely counteracts the beneficial effects of estrogen. And so progesterone itself um, isn't in birth controls. There are different progestins that are not exactly the same as progesterone, but have similar effects. And those progestins have different levels of androgenicity. And so you hear androgenicity and you think, oh, kind of like androgenic anabolic steroids, but it's actually the opposite. So progestins can bind to the androgen receptor and kind of stop testosterone from doing what it would otherwise do at that receptor. So the more androgenic a progestin is, the worse it probably is for female athletes. And the birth controls that were popular in the 70s and 80s, the formulations used much, much more androgenic progestins than what's used in birth control now. And so the early studies looking at the effects of birth control on hypertrophy, strength gains, did largely find that there were negative effects. The more recent research, probably on women taking like more recently formulated versions of birth control, largely finds no difference. So I think that I think that that is currently a myth that didn't used to be a myth. So I think back in the day when women took birth control, it did probably decrease training adaptations to some degree. These days it probably doesn't, just because the the formulations use less androgenic progestins. One one area where that may differ is um Again, in surveys on elite female athletes, the type of birth control that is frequently given the most uh, strongly negative subjective ratings is uh, progesterone injections or progestin injections. I think the most the most common like brand name formulation is called Depo Provera. Um, so anyway, like I'm certainly not telling female athletes to not use progesterone injections, but that if if there is a form of birth control that is most commonly implicated in negative effects on female athletes in the modern day, it's probably that one. So, you know, don't take don't take birth control advice from 
a dude on a podcast. That's a conversation to have with your doctor. Um, but that is potentially a conversation worth having. Okay, so next question for you, Eric. Uh, is it known if there is a optimal rate of fat loss for maintaining performance as best you can? So for example, the common guideline of about 1% of body mass per week or per, per month or whatever the questioner asks. Uh, basically, what is the, the optimal rate of fat loss? So, you know, you don't spend forever cutting, but you don't lose too much muscle, don't compromise performance too much. And this question is from Obi-Wan Trinobi. <laughs> well, um, it's tough because it. anytime you talk about rate of weight loss, it depends on where you're starting, where you're going, and why you're doing it. You know, so if you are losing weight because you think it will actually uh, improve your performance in your pursuit, um, then certainly you would want to lose weight in a fairly expeditious manner. You know, so if you think you're carrying way too much body fat to be effective in your sport or to be as competitive as you want to be, um, then that might influence uh, the rate of weight loss. If you're like, hey, I got to get down there and compete now. Um, now, another thing is maybe you're, you're doing just fine competitively. Uh, you're performing the way you want, but for health reasons, you're like, long term, I'd like to maintain a lower body fat. If that's the case, you might take a slower approach and really take, essentially play the long game and say, if we want to maintain this weight loss, let's take our time and do it right. A third factor to consider is if you do a slow weight loss phase, um, sometimes you find if you go really slow with weight loss, people get uh, they get a little bit impatient and the, la the lack of significant progress is actually a demotivating effect where b because the weight loss is taking a long time, even though that's generally more sustainable, they just quit earlier because they're like, I've been trying to lose weight for two months and I've only lost four and a half pounds or something like that. Um, now to get directly to the point, um, to generalize, usually you want your rate of weight loss to be somewhere between 0.5 and 1.0% of body mass per week. Um, that's usually a rate of weight loss that will be rapid enough to get the job done in a reasonable time frame for most people. Um, you'll see changes on the scale rapid enough to keep you interested and motivated and provide some reassurance that you're actually on the right track. Um, but you, generally speaking, don't want to go too far beyond that. Um, when you start to get to rates of excessive uh, speed when it comes to weight loss, um, you start to see a greater likelihood that performance will take a dip, that you might have slightly less favorable changes in the exact composition of weight that was lost. So there are some studies showing that a more rapid approach to weight loss, you might lose similar amounts of weight, but the more rapid approach might lose more lean tissue and less fat tissue. Um, there's also, I think Ina Garth, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her last name right. Um, but, uh, I, I know she did a study, uh, years back that was really fantastic. They took a, a ton of different performance and body comp outcomes. And, uh, it, it's a really high quality study showing that, uh, generally speaking, excessive rates of fat loss in athletes, uh, or rates of weight loss, I should say, um, probably are not the optimal approach, assuming that you have time to spend. And I, I think that study was looking at 
0.7% versus 1.4% of body Correct. mass per week. Correct. Yeah. And they found that pretty much across the board, uh, across the board, 0.7% uh, yielded better outcomes in general. Uh, it was certainly a short-term study. I, I think uh, I think it was like five and eight weeks, respectively, yeah. uh, for for the total duration of weight loss. But um, but generally speaking, once you start getting above one percent per week, you increase the likelihood that you might induce some more severe changes when it comes to hormone balance. So potentially greater drops in testosterone and and, and other hormones that change with weight loss. Potentially, you might see greater reductions in performance, a greater proportion of lean mass lost. Certainly, there are exceptions to that, um, especially if you have a lot of fat to lose. Um, that's a case where you can probably get away with a little, maybe going a little bit higher than that just to get the process going. But that's usually the range I shoot for, 0.5 to 1. Okay, question for Greg here. From... They're on Spud. I think it's the Iron Spud. Jesus, that's an embarrassing way to misread that. <laughs> I, I I thought you were just joking, and I wasn't picking up on it. I wish I was joking. It's been a long day. I've been yeah, my brain is fried it's, right now. It's all good. It's all good. The <laughs> the the Iron Spud. The thing is, I'm just used to these these usernames being gibberish that i it's like i don't even interpret them in real time anymore i'm just like here's some syllables all right the iron spud (laughs) any tips on maintaining a neutral pelvis in the squat and the deadlift anterior pelvic tilt is murdering my hamstrings yeah so that's um that's actually not too common in lifters and so just to start with one thing that i want to make clear is There are a lot of very hot takes out there about anterior pelvic tilt, neutral pelvis, have like, you know, ribs down cylinder between your ribs and pelvis and whatnot. There's not particularly strong evidence for any of that, that neutral pelvis is necessarily better, that anterior pelvic tilt is bad. So I'm answering this question with the assumption that someone has a lot of anterior pelvic tilt that's causing problems for them, or they just want to try something else and they're having trouble trying something else just because of how ingrained anterior pelvic tilt is for them, um, just as background. So uh, this is pretty common in lifters. So one of the things that most people learn first day in the gym is you don't want your back to flex under load. And so Um, people extend their spine to the point of hyperextending. And when you, you know, are trying to extend your lumbar spine really hard, generally that comes with anterior pelvic tilt of the pelvis. Um, so what can you do to try to get back towards neutral pelvis? I think one of the first things you can do is just get into neutral pelvis or posterior pelvic tilt positions just so it gives you like a conscious feeling of what that feels like, kind of gives your nervous system a feeling of what that feels like uh, in ways that are going to be non-threatening. So some things that I think are pretty good for that um, are like either body weight or very, very lightweight uh, hip thrusts or glute bridges where you're like very, very purposefully just using your glutes Um like maybe tensing your abs as well and really trying to get into posterior pelvic tilt. 
Another thing that I think is pretty useful for that as well is dead bugs, making sure you're doing them very, very strictly, getting into posterior pelvic tilt, keeping your back flat on the ground, not letting your lumbar spine come up off the ground as you do them. So only going down with with your leg as far as you can before your back starts coming up. Um, so yeah, just kind of getting into those positions and ingraining them in a, in a non-threatening way, I think is the first place you would start. Um, then another thing that just anecdotally seems to help a lot of people for reasons I'm not entirely sure of is like before you pull a deadlift or before you descend on a squat, um, just squeeze your glutes really, really hard. So like before you bend down to pick up the bar for a deadlift, like squeeze your glutes, put yourself in posterior pelvic tilt, uh, like before you pick the bar up. And then set up and deadlift as you normally would, but a lot of people find that just squeezing their glutes really hard and putting themselves in a more like posterior pelvic tilt or neutral pelvis position prior to setting up for the lift, even if if they're going back to like neutral spine or uh, lumbar extension for the lift itself, they find that that helps put them in a slightly more neutral position. For the squat, it would be after you unrack the bar, but, but before you start descending. Um, and then finally, like if those things don't really do it for you, just practice with lightweight. Um, so that's kind of assuming you can get to a neutral pelvis position in the first place. So some people just don't have the motor control for it. And for them, it is mostly just like repatterning, doing things that do put you in a neutral pelvis or posterior pelvic tilt position and just ingraining that position until you can consciously access it for movements like squats and deadlifts instead of like literally not being able to get into that position. Um, once you do have access to it, then it's just a matter of, you know, starting with manageable weights um, and just practicing the new positioning you want to ingrain. Um, so, you know, nothing magical, no nothing special, but those are the tips that I would give. Okay, uh, question for Eric from Linerzia. Uh, just as during a fat loss phase, it is recommended to recalculate maintenance calories and adjust the deficit accordingly. Is it beneficial to do the same thing in reverse for a mass phase? Or would the calorie surplus become too high too quickly? Uh, just a little terminology update. We're going to call it a bulking phase because everybody knows mass is the premier research review in the fitness world. <laughs> so we're going to reserve that term purely for the publication. Okay. All right. With that out of the way, bulking phase, should we be recalculating maintenance to inform our caloric intake? Um, the answer is yes, because theoretically it's basically the same thing. So the reason we recalculate maintenance during a deficit is because as we lose weight, that maintenance level changes. And some of that is because of losses in body mass, and some of that is adaptive in nature. Um, so total energy expenditure drops even more than we would predict based on body mass changes alone. Now, what we see is that during weight gain in a bulking phase or a massing phase is that uh, the inverse happens. So as we gain weight, certainly our caloric needs are increased. Uh, bigger bodies need more calories to run. But we also see that in some people, there is a pretty pronounced adaptive increase in energy expenditure. And the cool thing about that is 
there's research demonstrating it uh, several times over, uh, several different studies showing that some people, when you overfeed them and induce weight gain, they actually resist it quite a bit. Their appetite disappears, their total energy expenditure goes up way more than you would expect, and they are quite resistant to gaining weight during overfeeding. Now, if you've ever identified as a hard gainer and you're like, no matter how much I eat, I just can't gain weight, you're probably one of those people. Like These people have shown up in the research. Um, the unfortunate thing is, a lot of people don't display such a robust response to overfeeding, and when you overfeed them, their body is very happy to go ahead and store that as fat and keep it. So um, th the thing that makes that challenging is because it's quite variable, and that variability has been shown in the literature, it's hard to give a general guideline in terms of how much to expect total energy expenditure to increase when you overfeed. Um, but nonetheless, theoretically, it's the same exact scenario, just in the opposite direction. As you overfeed during a bulk, you would expect just from weight gain alone that your caloric needs would go up and your maintenance level would change. But even more so, some people are quite resistant to, to weight gain during overfeeding. It doesn't make it impossible. It just means that their body's going to try to resist that by shutting down the appetite and increasing the energy expenditure. So some people will have to overfeed more than they expected to gain a similar amount of weight during a bulk. Now, the, 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 the generalized advice I could give in terms of weight gain is to, um, and Eric Helms and colleagues, uh, I think the lead author was, it was, uh, Iraqi, right? Uh, maybe. With the, he has the podcast. Yeah. Not really a fitness. Well, I wouldn't call G it a podcast. G Juma Iraqi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he was the lead author. It's not a fitness podcast, but um, he was the lead <laughs> author on on a paper uh, with Helms and a, and a couple other people recently on uh, off season recommendations for bodybuilders. And uh, you know they give the target weight gain value of about 0.25 to 0.5 percent of body weight per week. Um, so, I mean, the easiest way to do it, in my opinion, is you start, you start your bulk, you shoot for somewhere in that range, depending on how aggressive you want to be. You keep an eye on how your body weight's changing. And if it's not increasing that fast, you increase the calories a little bit. Um, I, I don't think it requires a formal estimation of how much is maintenance and how much then would be my exact surplus. I, I like to just be consistent with my calories take a reliable morning weight, um, look at averages over a few days in a row, and kind of make my decisions accordingly in terms of how much I need to increase or decrease my calories. But I, I think a safe bet would be um, shoot for that range of weight gain, 0.25 to 0.5% of body weight per week. Um, and if you're gaining weight too quickly, drop the calories a bit. If you're not gaining quickly enough, increase them. And I think that should about do it. Okay, I've got a question for Greg here. Actually, it's not a question. It's a statement that we are going to use as a prompt for Greg to elaborate. <laughs> from Mika. The delayed adaptive response of connective tissue to resistance training. Sure. Begin. Uh, you know, just slap a question mark on there and end with an up inflection and you're good to go. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to ramble about connective tissue for a bit. So when, when people talk about connective tissue, they're primarily, I think, talking about um, the, the collagen that composes your tendons. 
So there's some evidence that other collagenous structures, so I'm thinking here ligaments or possibly cartilage, uh, intervertebral discs, there's some research showing that those things can also respond to training. But when most people ask about connective tissue adaptation, more often than not, they're asking about tendons. And so um, interesting stuff about tendons. One of the cool things is that when people think about tendons, they think of it as something distinct from muscle that's just kind of chilling out on the end of a muscle, kind of doing its thing. But tendons, actually, the entire mus musculoskeletal system is super interwoven to a degree that I don't think people fully appreciate. So... Well, I, I was going to say, like, in the more academic applications, when you talk about it, you talk about the muscle tendon unit. Yeah, like you, you yeah. rare, like the more academic inclination is to not even distinguish really between the muscle and the tendon. Yeah. You know? So, um, yeah. So you have a ton of connective tissue com completely running through all of your muscles. Um, they're called your endomyceum, perimyceum, epimyceum. All of those things are, are continuous with the tendon itself. The tendon itself is connective with or is continuous with collagenous structures that also run through your bone. So it's not just like it's it's glued to your bone in one spot, like your bones and tendons are completely woven together as well. It's all one continuous thing woven together by collagen, which I think is super, super cool. Um, but so in terms of uh, tendinous adaptations and collagenous adaptations within the musculotendinous unit uh, to training, one of the things that I think is poorly understood and poorly appreciated is the within muscle collagen and connective tissue and how that responds to training. So something that was proposed way back in the 80s in a review paper by Rutherford and Jones um, is that the, the connections between connective tissue and individual muscle fibers would increase with resistance training. That would aid in lateral force transmission from the muscle fibers to the connective tissue matrix throughout the muscle, which would help with force transfer to the tendons. And thus, essentially for any given level of motor unit recruitment and activation and actual muscle contraction, you would get more force actually making it to the tendon to create larger joint moments. That, I don't think, has been directly studied in humans just looking to see how many of like those adhesions there were between muscle fibers and connective tissue but there is some like indirect evidence i'm particularly thinking of a 2010 study by erskine and colleagues um, which found the types of performance-based adaptations that one would expect were that occurring um, so one of the cool offshoots of that and i think i think this is super cool is the amount of force your muscles can produce per unit of cross-sectional area is actually greater than the amount of force that your muscle fibers produce per unit of cross-sectional area, which is super unintuitive, but is probably due to that lateral force transmission and like enhanced transmission to the tendons via that uh, connective tissue running throughout the muscle. So those adaptations actually seem to take place pretty early in the training process, contrary to the uh, assumed question asking about 
delayed adaptive response. But I just think that's super cool, and I like to get it out there as often as possible. That when we when we talk about connective tissue changes, it's not just tendons, ligaments, cartilage. It's also connective tissue within the muscle, which actually has like pretty big effects on actual performance outcomes. Then in terms of tendons themselves, there's some evidence, actually there's quite a bit of evidence that uh, like trained, strength trained lifters, or particularly I'm thinking of a, a couple studies on weightlifters, that um, their like quadriceps tendons are thicker than those of untrained people it is assumed that that means that those tendons got thicker over time. Um, you can't necessarily infer that from a cross-sectional study, but that, that is the assumption people make. Uh, a lot of the longitudinal studies looking to see, however, whether tendons actually do thicken with training largely find that they don't, but it's probably due to the fact that uh, collagen turnover in tendons is just so slow. Here's a fun little fact. Uh, collagen turnover in tendons is so slow that um, if a dead body is found that is old enough that they were alive during the time of atomic testing, you can actually tell how old they were by like how deep into their um, into their Achilles tendon uh, like different isotopes are found, which. I think is wild. Is that assuming they live near common test sites or was it that ubiquitous that it would? Uh, a lot of the testing was in the atmosphere until a treaty like in the seventies or eighties that banned atmospheric testing. So, so, so yeah, like total levels of radiation that were like background radiation that we're exposed to today is lower than it was during the time that people were actually like testing a bunch of nukes. Yeah. And so like based on how deeply I was going to say, we don't test, uh, atomic stuff up there anymore but we do have chemtrails to to work with that so is true it's not all good yeah anyway but uh so tendon turnover is pretty slow um tendons do absolutely adapt to training a lot of the adaptations are more in like how the collagen itself is oriented versus how much of it there actually is collagen's really fucking strong like to to an extent that i don't think people fully appreciate um and so, like, when it comes to connective tissue adaptations, I think a lot of people are looking to see, like, do my tendons get thicker? But your tendons are probably already thick enough and strong enough to deal with the forces you put on them for the most part, unless you have some sort of pathology. But one of the things that does occur both with training and also with rehab, like if you do have a tendon injury, um, and then, you know, you immobilize it and then start training again, is you get better orientation of those collagen fibers such that they align better with the line of force and so the closer to like perfectly parallel they are the better they'll be able to transmit force and the more tensile strength they'll have so that's an adaptation that occurs Um, but if you're interested in actual like tendon hypertrophy one i don't think you necessarily need to be that interested in it just because tendons are so strong in the first place and two if it does occur we're we're talking about like it's hard to measure muscle hypertrophy in trained lifters on the time scale of months 
So when we're talking about tendon hypertrophy, like when you look at collagen synthesis after training versus protein synthesis, you get way bigger spikes in muscle protein synthesis than collagen synthesis. Um, and so like you're probably talking about adaptations that would take place on the time scale of years versus months. So, I mean, the question asked about delayed adaptive response, if there is actual like longitudinal hypertrophy taking place, it is probably quite delayed. Um, possibly a little quicker for untrained lifters, but we're talking, you know, for measurable increases to occur, it, it probably takes minimum months, likely years. Now, along the lines of that question, I've heard rumblings. Um, I, I kind of went straight into natural bodybuilding. Like, I, I never really hung with a crew that was into the more steroid-accepting world of bodybuilding, but I've always heard that one of the risks you run uh, with with the drug use and really heavy uh, periods of training is a uh, higher risk of connective tissue injury because of the rapid increases in strength mm-hmm. and like a delayed, uh, basically the idea that the adaptive responses of connective tissue can't quite keep up with the ever-increasing loads. Um, is there any any merit to that? I mean, that's entirely possible. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could, I could see that being the case. Actually, uh, I remember coming across a paper maybe like three years ago or so that was investigating whether there were differences in injury rates or injury risk between drug-free lifters and lifters on steroids. And I don't remember why, but one of the parts of the study is they took uh, quadriceps or like a, a knee extensor MVC. So they had people kick against it immovable resistance as hard as possible. And I remember I remember the results of the study as they said, oh, it doesn't seem to be any increased injury risk in these people on steroids. But one of the things they noted is there were like two complete quad tendon ruptures during the MVCs for the people on steroids. Um, but then I think they were excluded from the study because of that. So that makes you kind of wonder because like I've never heard of anyone getting a complete <laughs> tendon rupture during an MVC. No, uh, I mean that's like so so like m- maybe that's your first clue there buddy. But uh in an- another thing I'll note here um in in now I'm I'm definitely extrapolating to some degree, but in studies on injury rates and in strength sports, one of the things you see is that uh, strongman consistently has the highest rates of injury and strongman to the best of my knowledge does not have a drug-free division like there are absolutely strongman competitors who are drug-free but there's not an equivalent to the ipf yeah but they compete drug-free at their own risk essentially yeah pretty much so i mean maybe that's a factor there i think part of it is just strongman itself is inherently more dangerous than powerlifting and weightlifting is yeah. but you know maybe a larger percentage of the total pool of athletes using steroids. Like may- maybe that contributes to the increased injury risk as well. But th- one, of, one of the other interesting things, um, w- one of the interesting things about PEDs and potential risks to, to soft tissues that I don't think um, people talk about enough 
is one of the things that you'll often see people discuss in the context of professional athletes is like, oh, these guys are coming back from injury way quicker because, you know, like they're using growth hormone when they're not being drug tested. Uh, And it is true that growth hormone increases collagen synthesis. But um, in so like I mentioned before, your collagen is strongest when all of those fibers are uh, oriented correctly with the line of force. And so when new collagen is laid down, it's kind of laid down all willy nilly and you have to expose it to load for it to kind of gradually straighten out over time. And so there have been studies in mice where they put them on high levels of growth hormone and then test tendon strength. And it actually makes the tendons considerably more brittle because they're laying down a bunch of new collagen, but it's not oriented correctly. And so they're more susceptible to tendon ruptures. Um, and so like theoretically, if you use growth hormone, got thicker tendons, spent considerable amounts of time conditioning them, making sure all of the collagen fibers were arranged correctly in parallel to each other, that should, I guess, theoretically create a stronger tendon. But, you know, maybe a factor there is just kind of willy-nilly growth hormone usage and people laying down a bunch of new tendon that's not as strong because the collagen fibers are oriented in a bunch of different directions. You know, it's interesting that you brought it there with the growth hormone because when when you look at the the clinical research available on growth hormone administration, it doesn't appear to be that great for hypertrophy of skeletal muscle. Um, the studies I've seen generally show that it increases the growth of connective tissue, but not not much hypertrophy when it comes to skeletal muscle for so, for young people. Okay, is it different in old people? Yeah, I, I believe, um, like, people haven't really studied growth hormone for, like, ergogenic effects since the 90s. Right. But I think around the time that Yaroshevsky found that it didn't do much for young people, either either that same lab group or, like, another lab group concurrently did similar studies on older men, I believe, and found that growth hormone injections did increase hypertrophy in, in older people. Because one of the things that, that happens is one of the main triggers for growth hormone release is melatonin. And as you get older and your pineal gland ages, you produce less melatonin. And so you get smaller growth hormone excursions during the night. Um, and so like old people just have considerably lower growth hormone levels than younger people do. And so that's kind of logical. Like young people seem to have as much growth hormone as they need. And older people may benefit kind of in the same way that they would from TRT. Right. So the thing that interested me was you you hear about all these relatively young athletes who are allegedly using growth hormone uh, at a reasonably high level um, or, you know, high prevalence theoretically. And I've always wondered if what they were really trying to get out of it was maybe a little boost when it comes to connective tissue, um, either preventing injury or trying to accommodate some of the growth associated with other PEDs that have a more direct effect of skeletal muscle hypertrophy. But I had never heard that that research in rodents indicating that it made those connective tissues paradoxically more brittle. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm sure as with anything else, the dose makes the poison. Yeah. Um, 
It's been a long time since I read that study in rodents. They very well may have been using absolutely ridiculous dosages. Yeah. Um, and it could be one of those things where if you're resistance training as you're doing it, the collagen aligns itself kind of in real time as you lay it down and things work out okay. Yeah. Um, I was just kind of throwing that out there as a potential risk that I don't think a lot of people are aware of. No, I mean, it's really interesting. And it just it adds another layer of... Um, you know, I've just, I've always wondered, it's like people that aren't really that into um, sport at a high level, they always like talk about, oh, somebody's on HGH, like they throw it out all the time. And I've always wondered how prevalent it really is in professional sport, but also like what what is the real direct benefit that's getting obtained from it? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say. Um, it sucks because you'd I mean, like the, to... the the anecdotal thing that I'm sure we've all heard is that it really only does stuff if you're also taking steroids along yeah. with it, um, and, and growth hormone and insulin are two of the things attributed to bodybuilders like really blowing up in the late '90s, early 2000s. Yeah. So I mean, you know, if if all of the people in the world who are building the most muscle all say like, oh yes, this is a key to getting big Raimi size. Then like, I'm not going to say they're wrong. Yeah. Um, but you're right. Like in isolation, growth hormone doesn't really seem to do much. Yeah. To be fair, those are also the people who told us that, uh, you know, arginine and glutamine are, are really key to muscle growth as well. They were paid to do it. Yeah. But. I mean, there, there's a difference between what people... <laughs> are paid to say versus like what they actually do to be successful at their sport. Yeah. Yeah. But no, we went off on a little bit of a tangent, but growth hormone has always just intrigued me because you hear about it as if it's used at a a reasonably high prevalence and high level, you know, bodybuilding or professional sport. And it's always just intrigued me. Like exactly what are people getting out of it? Well, I I mean, it it wouldn't surprise me if it's somewhat popular because I think at that level, some people just look for like what can i take to potentially give me a marginal edge that i'm unlikely to get busted for yeah. and we we talked about this in the last episode um modern drug testing for steroids has gotten considerably better testing for peptide hormones has also gotten better but not to the same degree largely because um so with steroids, you can do carbon isotope ratio testing. You can't do the same thing on peptide hormones. Most of the peptide hormones that people would use are bioidentical to what you put in your body. With growth hormones specifically, there's such large daily excursions in growth hormone level because it's released in a pulsatile fashion that it's hard to just... Unless someone like literally just injected, it's hard to look at the actual levels of growth hormone in the blood and say this is unnatural. Um, similar with with EPO as well, um, and also like growth hormone and, and EPO both have really really short half lives, and so you know unless you inject it and then WADA knocks on your door fifteen minutes later, you're probably going to be fine. So I, I do think testing for that has improved. Uh, if anyone remembers Pat Mendez from back in the day, a uh, very promising young super heavyweight weightlifter. Yeah, I remember him. He got busted for growth hormone twice. Um, 
So, like, either he got super unlucky twice in a row or, like, the testing is is improving for that as well. Um, but, but I do know that it's still easier for people to get away with using peptides, of which growth hormone is one, uh, than using steroids. So it could be one of those things where, you know, may not have huge effects, but maybe there's some, some marginal benefits and, you know, people are gravitating to that because they think, you know, maybe I'll get a little something out of it and I'm less likely to get popped. Yeah. All right. Uh, DB Math Eats asks, uh, what is the current scientific consensus or your thoughts based on anecdotes related to weekly fat distribution in the diet and its effects on strength, hypertrophy, or fat loss? For example, would having a static 0.3 grams per pound daily be superior for hormonal balance slash performance slash fat loss, etc., compared to having days lower or higher than average throughout the week, uh, parentheses, in essence, fat cycling. So essentially, you know, what do you do when you're setting fat intake for a client? The the question of, whenever you have a question about nutrient timing of any type, it's important to consider what is this nutrient really doing for you? And is there a temporal component of that function? And so what I mean by that is we can intuitively say, does protein timing matter? Absolutely. If you had all your protein once every fortnight, you know, if you had just a <laughs> god-awful amount of protein one day and then just didn't have protein for 13 days, that'd be a really dumb way to do it because of what protein's doing for us. E- eating it in a possibly serpentine fashion? Exactly, yes. So <laughs> we know that our body is constantly breaking down proteins and we need to... Uh, replace those proteins we have turnover going on all the time so obviously there is some temporal aspect of the fact that we have continuous protein breakdown and we ought to have at least semi-continuous provision of new proteins uh, to to help offset that breakdown when it comes to carbohydrate carbohydrate cycling is fairly intuitive for certain applications because what does carbohydrate do for us? It, it provides energy and more importantly, or, or more, more directly provides energy when we're doing really glycogen depleting bouts of, of exercise. So you could at least understand why there would be a temporal component of that as well for athletes of, Hey, if, if, if you can't go high carb every day, but you have a particularly important workout situating carbohydrates somewhere with, within the week to, to really strategically target that, that makes a lot of sense. Now with fat, what are we eating fat for? Uh, certainly there are essential fatty acids that we must get from the diet that our body doesn't have the enzymatic machinery to produce from other fatty acids. So that's one thing. Uh, fat intake allows us to, or assists with, uh, the absorption of fat soluble vitamins. It's an important component of cholesterol and certain hormones and cell membranes. So we certainly need it, but I'm not familiar with much, much research at all looking at the concept of fat cycling. Um, because while we would be aware that we need it, and that we probably ought to have it on a fairly regular basis. I can't really, off the top of my head, think of a strategic way to leverage that into a particular timing protocol. I would think generally you'd want it daily just to facilitate the 
day-to-day replenishment of, of the need for those fatty acids and to facilitate regular absorption of fat-soluble vitamins, although theoretically you could hold on to those fat-soluble vitamins for quite a while. Um, I mean, you, you, you can build up a little bit of a storage of them. But the, the question to me, uh, or the question that comes to my mind is, how would you leverage this in a strategic way? It, it would seem to me that the most parsimonious approach, the simplest and most straightforward would be just set your fat intake and leave it on a daily basis. So th- that's usually my inclination. I, I usually recommend to my, my clients and with my own diet, I rarely let fat get below 0.6 or 0.7 grams per kilogram of body mass. I know some people that are comfortable getting down to 0.5. Is there a huge difference between 0.5 and 0.6? Probably not. But for me, for whatever reason, my line in the sand is at 0.6. I don't like going below that. Um, now, the, the only... The only way I could kind of see it making any sense, and I, I could be missing something, but maybe if you are strategically trying to really emphasize emphasize carbohydrate on a particular day and in order to make that work calorically, you, you want to maybe lower the fat that day and then increase the fat a different day. If, if you want to, for some reason, really pump a single day full of carbohydrate without having a... a totally non-linear caloric intake day to day maybe it makes sense that some of those carbs are displacing fat and you're going to catch up with that on the back end later in the week but generally speaking i i think this is making fat intake a lot more complicated than it ought to be so it would be more of like a secondary effect from manipulating other macronutrients versus right. doing it to specifically manipulate fat yeah i mean i could be missing something and if you have ideas uh, i'd be thrilled to hear him. I, I can't think of a strategic way that I would leverage my fat intake for a particular benefit. Yeah. I mean, if, if we're getting like super theoretical into the, into the realm of stuff that no people actually do, um, what you mentioned of like a super high carb day may make sense. So I believe in the last episode, maybe two episodes ago, we talked about de novo lipogenesis a little bit. Correct. And one of the things you see with de novo lipogenesis is it's pretty inefficient unless you have to do a lot of it pretty frequently. And so in big carbohydrate overfeeding study, like longitudinal studies, and by longitudinal, I mean like four or five days, um, when you have massive carb overfeeding, de novo lipogenesis is pretty inefficient the first day and then gets progressively more efficient as more of it's required. So... I mean, theoretically, if you wanted to have one crazy high carb day without wanting to, you know, while wanting to minimize fat spillover by minimizing fat intake for that day, de novo lipogenesis would probably be pretty inefficient for that day. And and you could maybe get away with it um, slightly better. But I don't know. At At that point, I think it's just kind of mental masturbation. And I will say along those lines, I do, whenever I program in like a very high carbohydrate refeed for somebody who's in a fat loss phase and they're trying to get very, very, very lean. So when we're in a, you know, I'm thinking physique athletes, uh, bodybuilders where every little ounce of fat matters in terms of their body composition. Whenever I give them like a really high carb refeed day, I do go a little lower than my 0.6 gram per kilogram. Like 
I do try to keep the fat pretty minimal um, just to decrease the likelihood. Again, the de novo lipogenesis is pretty inefficient for these kind of one-off high-carb days. So I do try to minimize the likelihood that we're going to divert a ton of dietary fat straight into um, adipocyte storage on that day. So I guess in a way I do a, a slightly strategic reduction of fat during those very high-carb refeed days. Um, but again, as you kind of, uh, narrated as I was talking through it, it's really more a secondary effect of the carbohydrate manipulation more so than doing any particular trickery directly relating to fat intake. So you might have a little bit of nonlinearity in there in order to make room for carbohydrate while preventing super easy shuttling of dietary fat to the adipocyte but aside from that um i i I think it's it's really a practice of splitting hairs okay this one is straight to the point short and sweet turbo sauce 74 10 millimeter belt or 13 millimeter belt oh man so so my personal preference here i'm just going to talk about belts generally um, cause I think the 10 mil 10 millimeter versus 13 millimeter is possibly the least interesting question <laughs> one could ask about belts. Uh, I apologize. Turbo saw 74. Hey, turbo saw 74. It's all right. Don't take it personally. He's just being, <laughs> he, he gets this way sometimes. So the, I mean, the thing about it is leather belts are going to last forever and, I mean, leather is a pretty resilient material, so you're not going to, you're not going to really notice a difference in the 10 millimeter versus 13 millimeter for how much it gives when you push out against it. So like if, if I had to state a preference, I would probably say 10 millimeter just because they break in a little quicker. Um, I mean, maybe theoretically they're going to have a little less longevity, but we're talking, you know, is it going to last until the heat death of the universe or, (laughs) merely 500,000 years. So that's not really a major consideration. Um, the thinner ones, the thinner ones should break in a little bit faster. Um, I think, I think the more interesting question and something that people don't put quite enough thought into is the width of the belt. So if you want the full, what is it? Is it like four inch maximum? I think that's the most allowed. Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, so do you want a four inch wide belt or a two and a half or three inch wide belt? One of the things that that I've personally noticed and that I've also heard anecdotally from a lot of other people is that the four inch wide belt works best for squats, um, but a lot of people like a slightly thinner belt for deadlift, especially conventional deadlifters. Um, so I think. I think if you if you have the funds to buy two belts, or if you have a friend that has a, a, a skinnier belt, it's worth at least experimenting with a skinnier belt for deadlift if you're a conventional deadlifter. If you have the funds, maybe worth buying like a two and a half, three inch belt instead of just the standard four inch, um, just to try that out. Uh, a, a lot of people report that the four inch belt interferes with their setup for a conventional deadlift and a, a narrower belt still helps them get more intra-abdominal pressure without um, interfering with their setup as much. So I think that is 
something worth potentially uh, experimenting with and playing around with. I think that's about it for belts. I, I was going to interject. I, I actually noticed that back when I was like really more focused on powerlifting than bodybuilding. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wasn't really tied into a powerlifting community. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't on powerlifting forums. So I figured it was just me. Like, mm-hmm. oh, that's a weird thing that I don't like. But I noticed I, I had like a standard like wide belt for squats that was worked great. Mm-hmm. And when I would set up for my conventional deadlift, it it would just, as I was approaching the bar, it would just dig in in all the wrong places. Yeah. And I, I, I'm, I'm a short guy with a relatively short torso and generally stayed pretty lean in those days. So I figured it was either that it was because my torso wasn't that tall, top to bottom, and that it, it was just too wide of a belt for me, or I figured if I had a little more cushioning in terms of body fat, it would have helped. But uh, apparently that's a thing people notice. No, I mean, that that's a pretty common complaint. Wow. Uh, w- one just random thing I was going to throw out there just, just as a fun little morsel for our listeners is people talk about intra-abdominal pressure. People study intra-abdominal pressure and talk about research findings related to intra-abdominal pressure. Most people don't know how intra-abdominal pressure is actually measured, um, which is like kind of gross, but also interesting. What they do is they uh, they put a balloon up your butt and see how much compressive force is exerted against the walls of the balloon when when you strain, um, and then when it's done, they remove the balloon from your butt, and that is how they measure intra-abdominal pressure. I don't know how many times I got to tell you we don't talk about butt balloons on the podcast. I've warned you thirteen times. <laughs> All right. And any other facts related Dude, to... Dude, you, you talked about, like, gruesome shit related to rodent research, like, two or three episodes ago. That was and, science. And I, and I can't talk about butt balloons? Butt balloons are science. Actually, that's a good point, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that wasn't that gruesome. It's, well, yeah, it was gruesome. Yeah. It was the shared blood supply. Yeah. Yeah, that was That's some gruesome. Dr. Frankenstein shit. Yeah, it was like that, that horror movie where they, like, the caterpillar thing you know Hum- what I'm ta- human centipede <laughs> yeah the caterpillar yeah <laughs> what was it human butterfly yeah yeah <laughs> okay um, m- moving onward uh we have a <laughs> Dude, my, my brain just does not work today uh, I... it's all good caterpillar. Uh, <laughs> what, what was what was that that book the hungry hungry caterpillar <laughs> <laughs> i don't know given the plot of human centipede that would be a a very not apt name for that movie no okay so have a question from mike eric o 93 um how long does the hypertrophic process take to manifest both increases in size and performance is it simply 48 to 72 hours or are there processes that take weeks or even months to truly realize Something like that could explain getting PRs in a fat loss phase following, uh, it says massing phase, but I think that's supposed to say bulking phase. I believe uh, so. Et cetera. Um, and little note at the end, I'm looking forward to the podcast. Thank you, Mike Erico 93 Yeah, well, here it is. And the massing phase is... Bless you. The massing phase is a process that people go through every month when the new edition of Mass comes out. So it's a <laughs> once a month process. Um... Okay, so 
here's the deal. When, when I started undergrad and started learning about muscle physiology, the, it was still a time when people would tell you, you know, first eight weeks of a training program, there's not going to be any hypertrophy going on. It's going to be completely neural adaptations. And then after eight weeks, you tap into the sweet, sweet land of hypertrophy. Now, my understanding is that a lot of that research, um, many of the studies used suboptimal methods to actually detect hypertrophy. So there's nothing wrong with like taking an arm girth or like an arm circumference measurement, but is that going to be the most sensitive way to measure that? Probably not. So uh, a few studies that I would say, especially since like 2010, 2013, there have been a few studies coming out saying, let's look directly at the muscle using B-mode ultrasound. Let's try to do some type of correction or at least account for the kind of acute edema that would result from going from no training to training. Let's try to get an idea of how rapidly we can actually observe some real measurable change in uh, muscle cross-sectional area happening in response to training. And in reality, we start building some proteins pretty much the second we start picking up weights. It's just, The question is, at what point does the accretion of new protein content reach the point? Well, among other things, the accretion of new protein content at what point do we start to see the size of the muscle increase to a degree that we can say that's a significant amount of growth? Some of the studies are showing that's probably as short as like three weeks or so. Some of the ones I've seen. Um, I know this this particular topic's important to you, Greg. So I'm going to let you take the mic in a minute here. But um, so so the thing that it's important to remember here is at what point do we start doing the processes that contribute to hypertrophy? And pretty much right off the bat. Now, why did we think that for the first eight weeks it doesn't happen? There's there's basically two reasons. As I alluded to a lot of the early studies, they just probably weren't measuring it with enough precision and sensitivity. Um, another thing that, that kind of clouds the, the topic is the fact that we see, we generally tend to see pretty robust changes in uh, more of the more neural aspects of, of force and, and power development early on in training. So when people start doing resistance training, especially if they're totally untrained within like the first four, six, eight weeks, we see that strength goes up disproportionately compared to hypertrophy. So that that's where some of the confusion comes in. So um, directly related to the question, some of those hyper, hypertrophic processes, they're pretty much starting right off the bat. Um, Greg, do you have any, what are your thoughts on the question? I mean, I, I think you covered it pretty well. Like there, there's two questions is the first is when does hypertrophy actually start occurring? And the second is when is it measurable? Yeah. And I think, you know, people used to say, ah, doesn't happen until after eight weeks. And now they say, eh, might happen in the first two or three weeks. I think it probably happens from day one. Right. It's just yeah. when we used really imprecise measurements, we couldn't detect it until eight weeks now we're using more precise but not perfect methods. We can detect it in two or three weeks. I think if there were perfect methods, we could detect it immediately. Right. Because even in untrained lifters, um, so, so with trained lifters, you see an increase in muscle protein synthesis and not much of an increase in muscle protein breakdown with training. With untrained lifters, 
you see increases in both synthesis and breakdown, but even in completely untrained folks, the increase in synthesis is considerably larger than the increase in breakdown. So, I mean, you're probably actually getting hypertrophy from day one. It's just, you know, we don't have methods sensitive enough to measure a 0.003% increase in muscle size. So, yeah, I mean, I think... Um, I think... In response to the original question, you know, from from the moment you leave the gym, you're probably growing. Um, the second part of the question, whether some of those processes take weeks or even months to truly realize, people hitting PRs during a, fast, a fat loss phase, uh, following a bulking phase, I think that, um, I think that oftentimes people are surprised when they hit PRs when they're not in a caloric surplus because the assumption that people have is that when I go into a deficit, even a relatively small deficit, um, it, like suddenly growth stops. It, it stops. It, if anything happens, you're going to lose muscle. Um, everything backslides pretty quickly and pretty dramatically when in reality, if it's a reasonably small deficit, especially if you haven't been in it for super long, and especially if you have a reasonable amount of body fat, you can absolutely keep gaining muscle and strength in a small calorie deficit. It's just that the rate at which that occurs, it's going to be considerably sl slower than if you're at maintenance or in a surplus. So, you know, if, if you went from a bulking phase into a cutting phase and you're, say, three weeks into the cut, you're only losing half a percent of your body weight per week, and you find that after a month of that, you're stronger than you were at the end of your bulk, that's not that surprising. Like, you're you're probably still gaining muscle. You're still having neural improvements. It's just probably occurring at a slower rate than it was when you were in a caloric surplus. So I think that, I think this question is, is predicated on an assumption that a lot of people have, that you know, as soon as you go into any sort of deficit whatsoever, just the, the switch for muscle growth is flipped off and it will not flip back on again until you're in a surplus. And that's just not the case. It's just, you know, growth progresses at a considerably slower pace. Now, it does seem that the question might be implying that things you did during the bulk essentially materialize in a delayed time course so they don't really become apparent until you're already in your cut and so i don't i don't expect that that would be the case that there are some like super delayed adaptations that you induce them during your bulk and then several weeks later into your cut they start to materialize do you see that being the case it would kind of depend what time course you're talking about yeah um because there is there was recently a study, man, I, I want to say the, the author's name is Bjornsson. Uh, I think, I think it's a Norwegian guy or a Norwegian lab group, um, where they did find like a delayed super compensatory response to training. I want to say that was a study in untrained individuals, but I want to say they were looking at knee extension force and it peaked. I believe either 10 days or 14 days after training cessation uh -huh. versus like immediately after training cessation. So, you know, like theoretically, 
I, I wouldn't be stunned to see, and I think this would especially be the case for someone who's maybe training with a really high volume during a bulk, and then they cut back on volume pretty substantially as soon as they start a cut. Yeah. Um, you're dealing with just less accumulated fatigue. Right. Um, you know, strength levels may increase and kind of peak. I wouldn't even be shocked to see like a month later. Yeah. But if you're talking about things occurring two or three months into a fat loss phase, you know, then it is probably just a matter of, well, you know, you are actually still gaining some muscle just pretty gradually. Um, any sort of like delayed transformation effect, I would expect to see that within a week or two, maybe, maybe, maybe a month. Anything past that, it it is like actual legitimate adaptations. Yeah, and I would expect that to be very believable when it comes to performance outcomes. Um, you know, I mean, anyone that's kind of peaked for like a powerlifting meet, you know, a few weeks before you, you can, I mean, you're just trained into the dirt, take some time off, you can kind of super compensate and, and uh, see that even with a little time off, your strength really seems to rebound quite a bit. Um, when it comes to hypertrophy, though, I find that to be uh, much more unlikely. That, that you would see, did they look at hypertrophy in that study as well? They did. So I, d- I didn't mention hypertrophy because I know they looked at thicknesses, cross-sectional area, and they took biopsies. Yeah. And I can't remember. So I want to say that they did actually see like delayed adaptations in muscle fiber hypertrophy as well, but not in muscle thicknesses. So essentially, maybe you're still like accreting some protein, uh-huh. but maybe you're also losing some edema. So the actual appearance of muscle size doesn't really change all that much. Huh. Um, I want to say that's what they found, but I don't. I didn't remember that for sure, so I wasn't going to mention it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. So I, I think at the very least, you can conclude that there's not going to be some extremely robust, pronounced change in like overall muscle size like yeah, yeah oh now that i'm into my cut now the growth is kicking in several weeks mm-hmm. later so if there is some kind of residual carryover it's probably most likely to happen very very within the first couple weeks to a month maybe two after transitioning from the bulk to the cut i, I think um, two months is already pushing it yeah so it, it, pretty it, substantially yeah it, it'd be a short-term thing that i really wouldn't bank on in, in terms of expecting those gains to materialize now one thing i will say is it's not too uncommon to see people hit deadlift prs during a cut um especially folks who are maybe middleweights with poor body comp into heavyweights just because like especially if you have a conventional deadlift as your waist size gets smaller your deadlift setup improves um so it's that's not that's not incredibly uncommon to see but i i would i think in that case it's kind of more your technique's more efficient not necessarily the total amount of force you can produce at each muscle increases yeah all right greg um got a question for you here from adam haas a few weeks back you mentioned uh, that any decent hypertrophy program with singles can be a good strength program too 
I'm having trouble trying to implement this into my own training. Can you discuss that further? Uh, sure. I mean, so so basically, if you if you conceptualize of a model where strength is kind of the product of hypertrophy and neural adaptations, then if hypertrophy is occurring and neural adaptations are either like positive adaptations are occurring or you're simply able to maintain your your current level of neural adaptations, you should then be able to get stronger. I think a trap that a lot of strength athletes fall into is they get their first taste of high intensity, low volume, low rep training. Uh, their strength numbers go up quite a bit. They're like, oh shit, like this is the stuff right here. And then they kind of get hooked on it. And, you know, there's kind of that meme that, you know, like high volume stuff, like anything higher than five reps is cardio. If there's more than three or four working sets, it's like, what is this shit? Like this volume is insane. Um, basically when it comes to volume, uh, strength athletes are a bunch of wimps for the most part. I, I, I have seen that on social media where someone will, I swear to God, they'll be like four sets of eight. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, four sets of eight. Like in the bodybuilding world, if it's less than 10 sets of 10, it's like, ah, oh, not bad. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think people kind of fall into that trap. They they get away from doing higher volume stuff that's going to be better for hypertrophy. And then they kind of find themselves in a position where, well, you know, you've gotten a ton of neural adaptations. Doing high intensity, low volume stuff really isn't actually increasing your one rep maxes anymore and now you've become a little wimp who doesn't want to do high volume stuff so i i think a pretty good way around that is just to pretty much stick to hypertrophy training while doing some heavy singles as well to maintain neural adaptations or improve them further and as far as implementation goes as long as you have a decent hypertrophy program to begin with just before your main lift of the day just work up to 85, 90%. If it's 85%, maybe do two or three doubles. If it's 90%, maybe do a single or two. And then, you know, if the main work is with 70% for that day, you know, after those singles or doubles, just drop back to 70%, do your volume work, do your accessories, call it a day. So just take the hypertrophy program and add a few singles into it. Um, in terms of how that that may look within an entire week of training, it kind of depends how how you're programming your hypertrophy work. So if I'm assuming you maybe train each main lift twice per week or something like that, you should be able to do, you know, a couple singles or doubles before every time you train the lift. If you're only doing each main lift once per week, that's probably suboptimal for hypertrophy to begin with. Um, but you should also have absolutely no problem doing some singles or doubles before, before your, your main lifts for the day. Uh, the only, the only way I could really see you running into pretty substantial problems are one, if you're doing full body every day, which if it's a pretty high volume hypertrophy program, uh, that's going to be rough to begin with. And you may not want to hit heavy singles or doubles on squat bench and deadlift every single day in addition to fairly high volume hypertrophy training. Um, or the other issue I could see you running into is when I say heavy singles or doubles, I'm talking 
RPE 7.8. Low reps, so even at that RPE, you're getting a considerable amount of weight on the bar, but you're not grinding stuff out. Um, if you have a hard time holding yourself back and when you get in your mind, I'm doing singles, if I'm doing singles equates in your mind to I'm hitting a max, then you may run into problems. Um, otherwise, I think implementation should be pretty straightforward. Okay. Um, so last, uh, last serious question for the day, everyday athlete underscore coaching asks Eric, I guess I know the answer, but I don't like it so much. We're off to a good start. Uh, dealing with clients who constantly get emotional slash demotivated slash irresponsible with their own actions. This is provided we set realistic goals and I get creative making plans that are suited to their lifestyle and preferences. No question mark. Uh, I guess the, the question is, what do you do with those folks? Yeah, so... I think one of the things that I... One of the things that's funny is a lot of people think if they just read a lot of science, they will immediately be a good coach. I think people forget that coaching in and of itself is a unique skill set. Um, without getting preachy, a very important part of coaching is being able to communicate well with your client, being able to empathize with their struggles, um, help learning to understand what's important to them. So you have to really connect with the client to, to troubleshoot this kind of thing. Now, people are going to get emotional about their situation because this stuff matters to them. You know what I mean? And if they're not getting emotional about it, then that's probably an additional problem. When, when they're no longer getting emotional about their problems, they've reached a level of apathy that, that is probably going to transition into just quitting or burning out in the, in the near future, you know, or at least going through a rut where they just don't give a damn about what they're doing. So the fact that they still have emotions tied to it is actually probably a good thing. Now, without getting on a huge rant and getting preachy about it, um, I've run into situations where clients are, um, a little demotivated or, um, even doing stuff where they're like, I did this and I know it's counterproductive, but what are you going to do? And whenever motivation's an issue, I think it's a good idea to certainly, you don't want to scold the client. Um, I think the more productive way to approach it is have a conversation with them, try to empathize with them and figure out what is the source of their lack of motivation, how you might work around that. But just have a conversation with them and figure out these goals that we set together, these very realistic goals. Why did we set them in the first place? You know, like, what were we trying to do? Why were they important to you? And are they still important to you? And it's not some kind of like motivational rah-rah speech that you're trying to guide them toward an answer. This is a genuine line of inquiry. Because if their goals and priorities have shifted, it does you no benefit to try to force them into reobtaining priorities that are no longer important to them. Or something something you you pretty frequently see is a lot of times before you build a rapport with a client where they feel like they can be like open and forthright with you, 
what what they say is their goal and motivation may not actually be their goal and motivation. Like they, they may have been insufficiently introspective about it. Um, where like they tell you what you think you want to hear, or they set their goal as something that they think should be their goal, or like what's expected, what they think is expected of them, versus like what they actually want to do and what actually matters to them. Yeah. And so I think that's a really good point. And sometimes you find that a person's goals and their motivations um, are not completely synchronized, or at least their stated goal, right? So if you're trying to guide them toward this stated goal that, like you said, may not really be truly tied in with their motivations or they think it is supposed to be their goal, but it's not really what what gets them out of bed in the morning. I think the only way through these kinds of situations is with some honest conversations. And hopefully if you are empathetic with your client and you build up a decent amount of rapport, you can have some honest conversations about, do we need to change our goal? Uh, now, if you have a long-standing relationship with this client and you know that they're going to regret shifting away from that goal, that's where it becomes more complicated, right? And you have to say, now, we we go way back. I know you, and I'm pretty certain that if we back away from this goal and completely shift course, you're going to regret that in three months. Um, so that that's another conversation that in some instances makes sense. But trying to work somebody through motivation issues is difficult. But, um, you know fitness coaches uh, a lot of us are meatheads and you can't just tough your way through this one and just like force the client into it and just you know say listen let's make it simple here's the goal here's what we said we're going to do let's do it taking that like hardline approach and being stern is a way worse approach than being understanding and trying to to really have an open conversation about that i agree and i think something I think something that a lot of coaches don't appreciate quite enough is that y- your clients may not be as into this stuff as you are. So I-, I think it's hard for a lot of coaches to empathize with clients um, and kind of understand losses of motivation and whatnot. Because like most of the time, if, if you get into personal training or you get into coaching, it's because you you live and breathe fitness um and like especially working out like it's not hard to drag yourself to the gym it's something you like legitimately look forward to doing um maybe your favorite thing to do in the world you will probably have a multitude of clients for whom that is not the case and so it's less of well why didn't you go to the gym is is it not your favorite thing to do? That doesn't make sense to me. And more of like, you know, you don't really like lifting or maybe you like it, but don't love it. So, you know, how can we make just the process more enjoyable to you? And what are you actually trying to get out of it? Like, what is a big enough carrot uh, that you're that you're pursuing to actually make the whole thing worthwhile? Because for a lot of us, it doesn't really matter what goal we're pursuing. Like you can just absentmindedly go to the gym and train for two hours. Even if you don't, you know, you're, you're not prepping for a meet. You're not prepping for a show. You're just going to fucking go lift. But like, that's not the case for everyone. And so it's, 
it's a matter of like trying to figure out what they actually get out of it um, and how and how to keep them more motivated by making the actual training process something that connects with them better. And, and along those lines, sometimes the, the a really helpful thing to do is to figure out what exactly are they avoiding when they don't go to the gym? Like, what is the main barrier that we can actually uh, really strategically target? So sometimes you might talk with a client, again, open-minded, accepting conversation where they feel very um, free to be honest with you. And you find out one of the reasons that they're skipping so many damn workouts is because the workout takes them 95 minutes to get through. Mm-hmm. And if you trim that down to an hour or 45 minutes, you can still give them a hell of a workout in 45 minutes. And if time is their barrier, that when they look at it and they start adding them the minutes in their head, they go, oh, not today, man. Yeah. Or you might find that they're just the loads you're giving them. They're like, dude, it's just when I see five sets of squat at that, I'm not driving to the gym. Mm-hmm. You know, like there are little things even within the programming, the nuts and bolts of the program that you can adapt. Another thing that that can be really helpful is giving your clients a choice when it comes to their accessories, Mm -hmm. right? So like if you say, hey, we need to do squat this set, you know, this many sets, this many reps, here's your loads, and I want you to do this type of accessory. Give me a quad dominant accessory, three sets of 10, and give me a hamstring dominant if you just give them like little options like that built in, that can be another trick where they go in and say, I'm going to squat for 15 minutes and it'll be fine. And then I'm going to do, you know, 30 minutes of some fun accessories that I choose. Mm-hmm. So it's about knowing your client at the end of the day, knowing what they enjoy, what they get out of it, what's important to them, their main barriers to adherence and, and trying to manipulate those variables accordingly. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, Fun little question that that you brought to my attention that you saw today. Um, when when you brought this to my attention, I was honestly flabbergasted. Generally, eh, whatever. I'm just gonna read it. Does blending your food render it less nutritious? I was I was offended. I was shocked, um, sickened when I got this question. Um, and to be fair, it's like one of those things where somebody just told it to this person so forcefully and with such great certainty that they were like, it's not like they believed it. They were just like, what am I missing? So so I, I don't want the person who asked it to feel embarrassed for referring it to me. But I think they were just so genuinely confused. It's like, it's like it was on such a different plane of thinking that they're like i'm so correct that i feel wrong about this <laughs> like because the per so basically um they had been putting like one of their meals of the day in the blender and a very muscle-bound trainer told them bro you, you can't be putting your meals in a blender because when you consume food that has been blended it has essentially already been digested and you're missing out on some aspect of the nutrition i i that's where it breaks down for me and uh i don't want to spend a lot of time on this question out of respect for the audience and hopefully not making them any dumber but <laughs> when i got that question well, I mean, we, we started this podcast if you'll remember to reach 
potential people who would be interested in our content, but who are, in fact, illiterate. Correct. So yeah. th- this, this is very on brand for our podcast. <laughs> it is. But so like when, whenever you come across something like that and it, it's like if you think that blending something is like, well, you wasted those calories, like what's your policy on chewing your food? Yeah, for real. I mean, it's, it's like your mom always told you. If you chew, if you chew each bite more than five times, what the fuck are you wasting your time on? Exactly. So yeah, I just I didn't even know where to begin. I, it's yeah. If you can't blend it, how do you chew it? I mean, what what is happening to this nutrition? Like, what aspect are you missing? And it, to to make it more actionable, let's assume. I mean, you're not really changing the food by blending it in, in a material way. So I guess the assumption would be that there is some inherent value to the chewing process in and of itself. Life hack. What if you chewed gum all day? I mean, yeah. that would be that would be the good stuff where you're getting that chewing benefit without even having to consume calories. Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess theoretically, I think chewing might be related to cephalic phase insulin response to some degree, but I think that's more just related to either to just having like sweet or starchy things in your mouth. Yeah. yeah. With chewing being of distant secondary importance. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, if you're out there and you've been blending food and your heart skipped a beat when you when some muscle bound guy told you that blending food makes it essentially useless and non nutritious, you're cool. Yeah, I mean just just going straight down anecdote highway right here blaine sumner blends like four of his seven meals per day or something uh and dude is far and away the strongest single ply power lifter on the planet dude dude has an a thousand pound single ply bench uh squats damn near 1300 in single ply he's obviously deriving nutrition from all of the all of the chicken shakes he consumes Theoretically, but I'd love to see what he could do if he was chewing his food. <laughs> I'd love to see it. Oh, man. Um, so just to make this slightly more useful and actionable. Um, so chewing has been investigated as a weight loss strategy before. Um, I don't I don't think there's I don't think there are any longitudinal studies. I could be wrong about this. Um, but one of the pretty consistent findings comparing lean and obese individuals is that lean people tend to chew their food, uh, like chew each bite more times than obese people do. And some like acute studies have found that when you tell people to chew their food more times, they consume fewer calories in a meal and report just as high of satiety um, versus just letting them self-regulate chewing and chewing fewer times per bite. So, I mean, and, and, and that, that is, I guess, something potentially useful worth noting. Um, blending your food and consuming things as liquid may help you choke down more calories versus like forcing yourself to chew more may help you be a little bit more chill on a hypocaloric diet. Um, just so just so you do get some useful chewing information from this podcast uh j- just 
fun little eating hack, I guess. Yeah, we feel some obligation to bring some type of utility to the conversation. Yeah. All right. So um, speaking of which, this is a question and answer episode. These episodes are dependent on the questions that you, the listener, provide. Um, So send us your questions using the links provided in the show description if you would like some of your questions answered on the show. Um, If there's anyone in the Netherlands listening, send us uh, any message at all. Please be nicer than the previous ones that you sent. (laughs) Um, If you like the podcast, be sure to like it, subscribe, and leave reviews wherever you get your podcasts. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Simplecast, but you can also find us on a variety of other platforms. Those include Google Podcasts, CastBox, Podcast Addict, Spotify, Pocket Casts, and YouTube, among others. I think that does it for today's episode, right? Yes, sir. All right, so we will see you guys next time, and we're signing off. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.